0: Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Paul continues on and he says, "Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and just jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now go back to verse eight. Paul says, "Owe no one, anything except to love each other. Now, Many have tried to take this verse to teach that borrowing money is wrong. And I love, have told you before, and I'm going to tell you again, beware of anyone who builds a doctrine from one verse. Because there have many. I've heard people say, look what it says, you are to owe no one anything. Therefore, if you borrow money, you're owing somebody, and that's a sin the Bible says, my Bible says right here, owe no one anything. Well, again, we're going to take a little time right now to chase this. And build our doctrine on this subject real quickly from the whole of Scripture. This verse is, first of all, not teaching about borrowing money or not, as you're going to see in just a little bit. But also, the whole of Scripture does not match up with the the interpretation of the Bible says that borrowing is wrong. Actually, the Bible talks a lot about borrowing and lending, and the Bible actually encourages borrowing and, and lending. With certain stipulations. And let's just chase a couple of those. Let's go to Exodus 22. Exodus chapter 22. Look at verse 25. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, it says this. It says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So here it says that you can let someone borrow money, but if it's a brother, they're not, you're not to exact interest. Go to Leviticus 25. Look at verses 35 through 38. Leviticus thirty-five, twenty-five, thirty-five. 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but for fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. So here again, it's okay to lend and to to borrow, but we're not to charge interest to our brothers. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let's get a little more instruction on this, and let's build up our understanding a little bit more from the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Whatever it may be. Now take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother. And the needy and the poor in your land. Now, in this one, it goes a little bit deeper. It says if you've got someone in, in the, the family of Israel who's poor and they're in need, you can lend them money. Lend them money. Don't charge interest. Don't make money off of them in this situation. But if you know the law, the law every seventh year was a year of release, and then there was the year of Jubilee, and all debts were forgiven. Remember? And he says, if you're now doing the math in your head like, oh, no, next year is the year of Jubilee. I might not get paid back. Don't let that get in the way of you helping your brother. You should lend it to him. He should be willing to pay it back. Yet at the same time, if he doesn't trust God, that he'll take care of that. Now, let's keep going. Go to Psalm 37. Look at verse 21 and then verses 25 and 26. Psalm 37, starting in verse 21. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. So, does the Bible here say that borrowing is wrong? No. What's wrong? not paying back when you borrow. Borrowing in and of itself is not a sin. The Bible actually encourages lending. Go to verses 25 and 26. David says, I've seen the young. uh, i sorry, I've been young and now I'm old and I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Go to Matthew chapter five, verse 42. Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would what? Borrow from you. So let me ask you real quick. We're going to go to one more verse in just a second. Does the Bible say that borrowing money is wrong? No, it doesn't. Go to Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 32 through 36. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 32. (laughs) Luke 6, verse 32. Kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So here again, the Bible encourages lending. But we need to do it with an attitude that says, look, if you pay me back, great. And if you don't, God's going to take care of me. Now, the wicked, though, borrow and don't pay back. You don't want to be one of those either. But So beware of those who would take Romans Chapter thirteen, verse eight, and says you're never to ever take out a loan. That's not what the Bible teaches. But now I want to ask you another question. We've seen it so far. Is it wrong to ever lend money for interest? No. Very good answer. The Bible actually talks about that too. Go to Deuteronomy chapter twenty-three. Chapter twenty-three, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-three. Look at verses nineteen and twenty. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So it is okay to charge interest. My wife and I, praise the Lord, just this past June, paid off our house. Hey, it's the only house we've ever bought. I've always lived in government-assisted housing or a trailer park, or we actually lived in a parsonage one time as a pastor of a church. We lived in the house right next door that had matching bricks, so everybody that went to the church for the free handout knew that's the pastor's house, and I hope we never live in a parsonage ever again, especially right next door to a church, but let me just tell you, it wasn't until we moved here in the year 2000 to become pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic that we actually bought our first house, and praise the Lord, we paid it off in June. And if there wasn't such a thing as people lending money and they did it for interest, we weren't family. <laughs> but you know what? We wouldn't have been able to get a house. But years ago, when my wife and I were first, uh, well, we had been married now about three to four years. Uh, we, we had our first child. And my little pickup truck wasn't going to work anymore. We had a little Zuzu pup, and Becky and I used to ride in that front seat of that pickup truck everywhere we went. That was the only car we had for the first four years of our married life, and we actually got pretty good. To where she would actually sit right next to me on the couch seat, and I'd drive with my arm around her and my hand on the steering wheel, this arm around her, and she shifted. It was an, it was an it was a standard, and we had that thing down where I'd hit the clutch and she'd hit the gears, and we I just drove with one hand, and so. But now we have a baby and there's not any room in the pickup truck for that car seat. And so we knew we needed a van. Well, we didn't have any money. We didn't have anything. And there was, I was at this point now, associate pastor of a church in New Orleans. And there was, the pastor of that church actually had a dealer's license. He liked to wheel and deal and buy and sell autos at the auction and he called up one day while I was at work and he said, I'm over here at the auction and there's a van here I think you should get. It was a Dodge Caravan. I don't remember what year it was, but the old boxy ones, you know, the square ones. And uh, so I, I called my wife and I said, uh, how much am I allowed to bid at the auction for this van? She said, if it's worth anything, she goes, let me call my grandmother. And her grandmother promised to lend us $6,000. No interest. It took us a little bit to pay her back, but we paid her back. I remember the day when we finally paid off that $6,000 loan. But thank God she didn't charge us any interest. But I went to the auction with $6,000 promised. And uh, have you ever been to one of these things? I've seen I don't know what the guy's saying. <laughs> and it comes time for our van to come through and they start rattling off and I just keep raising my paddle. Just so happened it was end up between me and somebody else right across the way. And whenever that guy would say something, he'd raise his paddle. He'd say something again, I raise mine. The auctioneer said something again, he raised his paddle. The auctioneer said something again, I raised mine. Next thing you know, I'm praying, Lord, I only got $6,000. Found out at the end, when we won the van, that the guy that I was bidding against wasn't going to pay any more than $6,000 for that van. And it just so happened that the timing of it, he was at the odds, and I was at the evens. And when it got to 6,000, he stopped bidding. I didn't know what the guy said to raise my paddle, and that was what it was. By God's grace, he took care of us, but you know what? We wouldn't have been able even to buy that van if it wasn't for her grandmother lending us the money. But she didn't charge us interest, and the Lord took care of her and blessed her because of it. So beware those who take a verse, Out of the context that it's in first of all and also that they try to teach something that doesn't match with the rest of scripture let's go back to romans chapter 13 though what is paul really saying here and in order to understand what he's saying you have to go back to the previous verse look at verse 7 remember where we ended up last week pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, he then goes on and says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, let's clarify this here. The word owe is tied to paying what is due. And he's, like I said, connected us to verse seven. To owe in this situation is to not give what is due or owed. In other words, pay off all your debts. But the one debt you will forever owe is your responsibility to love each other. Do you understand what he's saying? He said, if there's a debt, pay it off. If it's owed, pay it. But let me just help you out. There's a debt you're going to have and there's something you're going to owe To your brothers and in the world, but especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is love. You'll never say, well, I've loved that one enough. That debt's paid. We are to forever be willing to share love with each other. God's word, God's love. And Jesus himself commands us to love everyone. He paid our sin debt with his love for us. And he commands us to share this love with everyone. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to spend some time here now kind of showing you how the scripture commands us to love each other. In 1 John chapter 4, we starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone, excuse me, anyone who does not love no one has ever seen god if we love one another god abides in us and his love is perfected in us now, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are also. So are we in this world? There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for that kind of fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now listen closely to what he says next. This is important. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's pretty strong language, folks. If you say you love God and you have hatred toward your brother, guess what? You don't love God. And strongly, John says, you may not know God. Because if you know God and he lives within you, God is love. And you if you say I'm saved and I know God and he's forgiven me of my sins, that means you've received his love. And if you've received his love, you can't help but share it with everybody else because of what he's done for you while you were still a sinner. Romans chapter five, when you were powerless, when you were his enemy, he died for you. And he, 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 for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Yet how many people today do we know, well, well, as soon as they ask for it, I'll give it. That's not how it works. No, we need to have an attitude of love because of the love that we have. And if we're not willing to share that love, the Bible says you better check whether or not you're in that love and have that love. Because if you say you love God and don't love your brother, eh, you're a liar. Now, this opens up something else that for years gave me a bellyache. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 18 about a man who owed a great big debt to this master. And actually, if you were to do the math and take the number that Jesus gave, how much he owed, and put it in today's numbers, it would be like a gazillion billion. Seriously. The number Jesus gave was an astronomical number of a number no man on earth ever would ever earn that much money in his lifetime. But he owed that big of a debt. And he goes to the master and he says, please forgive me. I'll pay you back. And the master says, I tell you what, I'll forgive the whole debt. The guy then goes away, but he sees a fellow servant who owes him 50 bucks in comparison, if you will. And he says to the guy, pay me what you owe me. And the guy says the same thing that he had just said to the other master. And he doesn't forgive him the debt. And he throws him into prison until he can pay and when that first master found out that the guy he had just forgiven the gazillion billion had that attitude toward his fellow servant, that master had him grabbed, thrown into jail and says, now you owe that whole debt that I had already forgiven you of. You now owe it and you're not getting out till you pay the last penny, which in the story, if we understand it, he'll never get out. First off, even if he was out, he could never pay it. And now that he's in prison, he ain't going to be able to make any money and pay it. And for years that bothered me, because I know the Bible teaches that once I've been saved, I can't lose my salvation. Yet here was a man who was forgiven. Yet because he wouldn't forgive. He was thrown into prison or sent to hell, if you will, in this story. And then over the years, God began to open my eyes to the fact that, you know, the Bible teaches very clearly that the whole world is already forgiven. Colossians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right around verse 19, it says this. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now be, we say, be reconciled to God. In other words, the message of the gospel is God loves you so much. He's already paid for all of your sin. It's been forgiven. All you have to do is receive it. If you choose to not receive his payment for your sins, you're saying, I'll pay it myself and you'll never pay it off. And that's why hell is eternal. Oh, guess what? This man was forgiven. But that doesn't mean he was saved. But the fact that he was not willing to forgive his fellow servant showed he had never fully received the forgiveness that was given to him. Because if he truly received what what he had been given, he would have been gladly able to say, Look, I just got forgiven a whole debt a gazillion billion. Fifty bucks is nothing. It would have been a heart change. change. And doesn't Jesus teach us in Matthew chapter six when he teaches on the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive others for if you don't forgive your brother your heavenly father won't forgive you is your salvation contingent on whether or not you forgive somebody no but the bible teaches that if you have hatred in your heart and you're not willing to forgive and you're not willing to love your brother or your sister and even those in the world you might want to check whether or not you really know god go ahead shuts off the spirit it definitely shuts off the spirit. That's another whole level of this, without question. Go to 1 John, sorry, not 1 John, go to John chapter 15. Let's listen to the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 15, look at verses 12 through 17. This is Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, This is my suggestion. No, what does he say? This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Now greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So is this where Jesus commanded that they love one another? Not quite. Two chapters earlier, he had already commanded. This is a repeat of the command. Go to John 13. Go to John 13. Look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. What's the first evidence, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22? What's the first evidence of the Holy Spirit within us? Love. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so on. The first evidence is love. So folks, what what Paul's saying here in Romans 13 is, is look, you got a debt, pay it. Don't owe anything. Yet, there's a debt you're going to have and that you do have that you'll never pay off, and that's love. And we're not only supposed to share love with the world, especially those who are in Christ. Now, there's a couple other things I want to chase real quick about this love. The first one is this. You really want to know what love looks like and and what your love for others is going to, how it's going to manifest itself? Go look later on at 1 Corinthians 13, how love is patient and love is kind, doesn't boast, doesn't insist on its own way, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth it bears all things. Hopes. You see what I'm saying? Oh, by the way, you want some encouragement? Go back and read 1 Corinthians 13 and take your eyes off of you and read it again and put the word God is. God is patient. Remember, God is love. He's all of that perfectly. God is patient. God is kind. God does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. God is patient he loves and bears all things and so on when you really start to understand the love of God toward you it'll be easier for you to share it with the people around you years ago when I was pastor at first the Atlantic uh, we used to have children's sermons every week and to be honest with you I always liked them because God would give me these crazy ways to illustrate it for the kids and to be honest with you I think the parents were paying more attention than the kids and to be really honest with you, most of my children's sermons weren't written for the children. They were written for the parents because that's one of the only thing they probably got in the sermon. That was the children's sermon that day. But one, one day I had decided that I was going to teach this whole point of the fact that what God has given us we're to share and not to hold it for ourselves. And so uh, there was a young boy named Corey And uh, he actually is a nephew of mine and my brother's uh, family was going to church there at the time. And I asked him to come up and and I gave him a a little jar of candy and I explained to him, I said, this candy is yours. It's a gift from me to you, but I'm going to ask you to trust me because even though it's yours and you get to do with it, whatever you want, I'm going to make a promise to you. That if you do with this candy what I say to do with this candy, that candy will not run out. I said, Do you understand? And you have to realize he's like six. He said, Okay. I said, Okay, it's your candy. You can go back to your seat, do whatever you want. But I'm gonna ask you on the way back to your seat, give it to anybody here and any kid that raises their hand and wants some of your candy. Well, you could see his eyes go, and all of a sudden hands all over the sanctuary started going up. His kids wanted some of his candy. And so Corey, though, because he knew his Uncle Jim, he trusted and he said, okay. And he went around and he starts passing out the candy. And his candy's getting less. And I started playing Satan. <laughs> Corey, your jar's getting empty. What are you gonna do? By the time you keep this up, Corey, by the time you get back to your seat, you'll have no candy for yourself. Aren't you worried? And he turned to me and he said, Uncle Jim, you said that if I did whatever you said, it wouldn't run out. I said, you really believe that? He said, I do. And what he didn't know was I had hidden one of those bags of candy you can buy at Sam's. And I'm not kidding you. It was like (laughs) huge. So big he couldn't carry it. And because he was willing to trust and to give away the candy, He got a gazillion billion more candy than he even started with. And the Heavenly Father has promised that if we are willing to just trust that all the love we need is there, just share it. Well, do they deserve it? Well, did you? Did you deserve it? The moment you think you did, you're in trouble. He's commanded us to love each other as he has loved us. And that's how you'll know. And one last thing. The world today will try and tell you that to love them means to say that what they're doing, if it's sin, is OK. That's not love. If you're not willing to share with somebody the truth, you love yourself more than you love them because you're more worried about what they think about you. Now, where are to share the truth, though, how? In love. And we're to make sure that the Lord's telling us when to share it and how to share it. But don't fall into the trap that the world is trying to set for you today that says, if you really love me, you'll say that how I'm living is okay or that my lifestyle is okay. No, no. I love you enough to tell you that it's not okay. but it doesn't change how I look towards you. Oh, they'll say, well, if you don't agree with my lifestyle, you don't love me. Well, you may not understand my love for you, but I do love love you. And whether you understand it or not doesn't change it. But you need to uh, keep that in your mind as well, because the world will say to love me is to say what I'm doing is okay. We can't go there. Go to back to Romans 13. Paul then adds something else to this. He says, actually, the Ten Commandments will be kept perfectly by loving God and loving each other. Look what he says here now in verse uh, nine for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet, or any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Go to Matthew 22. Jesus himself lays this out, and actually it's laid out all through the scriptures. And I'm going to show you just a few of the paces. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They were trying to trick him into saying which one's the most important. And he says actually they're all important. But if you want to put them all together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And that will take care of the first four. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And that will take care of the other six. And if you just love God and love people. You will keep all the other commandments. But go back to what Paul said in Romans 13 again. He quotes, it appears, a verse that a lot of us don't know where it is. Look at what he says again. It says uh, the commandments, verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, not steal. Well, we know where those are. That's in Exodus chapter 20. They're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, where did Jesus quote you shall love your neighbor as yourself from? Does anybody know? Well, that's what I'm here for. It's Leviticus chapter 19. Go to Leviticus 19. Look at verse 18. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, the scripture says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's another way of him saying this is a commandment. I'm going to read to you a couple of passages real quick if you, for the sake of time. If you want to chase them with me, you can. But you can just listen. James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. By the way, y'all know that one, don't you? What's well, called the what? The Golden Rule. What, what what God's saying here is this: If you love people, you'll actually keep the commandments of God. Because if I really love you, I won't lie to you. If I really love you, I'm not gonna cheat on. I'm not gonna cheat on my wife if I really love her. Commit adultery. If I really love you, I'm not gonna cheat with your wife. Or covet. I'm not going to murder or have even hatred in my heart toward you. If I love you, I'll keep the commandments. If I love God, actually, Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We flipped it. Oh, I got to prove that I love God by keeping his commandments. No, 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 you missed it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What should be our focus? Keeping his commandments or loving him? Loving him. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, so I will say, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. See, this is where we take a lesson like this. And the preachers, unfortunately, would have us do this. We'd go back and take a look and see, am I coveting? Am I lying? Am I? No, get your eyes off of yourself. And I want to encourage you, go allow God's love to seek into your heart and let God love you. And when you can't help but love him in return, you'll all of a sudden start keeping the commandments. The problem with us examining ourselves against the Ten Commandments is, first off, we won't give ourselves a fair assessment. I mean, that wasn't really a lie. It was just a white lie. Like there's different colors of lies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I don't care if I'm judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Actually, he said, I don't know of anything against myself. That doesn't mean I'm thereby acquitted, but the Lord knows. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David says, Lord, you search me. You search me and know me. You show me if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the paths everlasting. There's only two places in the Bible, folks, that I see the Bible tell us to examine ourselves. The first one that I want to talk about is in 2 Corinthians 13 5, where it says, Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? So I want to show a hands here. How many of you have examined yourself and you know you're saved and you know Jesus is in you? All right, hands down. How many of you that have done that need to do it anymore? No. Will he ever leave you? Then you don't have to examine yourself to see if Jesus is in you anymore, do you? If he's there, he's there. So we don't need to examine ourselves anymore. Put that helmet of salvation on, cinch it on tight. Satan can't mess with you there. For many of us, we've all gone through those time periods where we start to wonder, am I really saved? And Satan works us over, doesn't he? That's why we need to put on the helmet of salvation and know, get that settled, though. It's important that we get that settled. But once it's settled and his spirit is confirmed with your spirit that you're his child, Romans 8, verse 16, then relax. You don't need to examine yourself anymore to see if you're saved. That one's taken care of. There's only one other place, and that's in 1 Corinthians 11 where the Bible actually talks about when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're to examine ourselves as to how we're treating the body. Now, it's not whether or not we're considering the body and the blood. We don't have time to get into the context, but that whole context of Romans 11, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's dealing with the fact that what they thought was the Lord's Supper was not the Lord's Supper because they weren't even taking it together, and the whole thing was a mess there in that church, and there were all these divisions. And the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper was to remind us that God died for us. Paul actually says, what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He said this, this is my body broken for you all. That word you is a plural. Eat this in remembrance to of me. Eat it together. It's a koinonia meal to remember why we've been put together and how he died for us. What should we be focusing on? Have you ever noticed how Paul, when he wrote to the churches, Never said, how many of you are you running? Did he ever write to a church and say, what's your attendance on Sunday? Not once. Actually, God doesn't care about your attendance on Sunday. I could show you scripturally, God may even blow up your attendance on Sunday to accomplish his purposes by having more churches and getting the message out. We're trying to build our kingdom. That's another message for another time. By the way, did Paul ever write to a church and say, how many of you baptized? Never did. But if if you read his letters, he says this over and over. I've heard of your love for the Lord Jesus and your love for each other. And here's my prayer for you. That you will go out and knock on more doors. No. That your love for him and knowledge of him will grow and your love for each other will grow. Um, I think that's love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this all hangs the law and the prophets. We've been taught to focus on evangelism and focus on church growth and focus on all these different things. And the Bible all along has been saying, love me and you will keep my commandments. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Your focus should be following me and walking with me. And as you do, you're going to love each other. You walk in the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But now, not only should we be living this way because of Jesus' love for us. But also because his return and our reward is getting closer each day. Go back to Matthew 13. Look what he says now in verse 11. Besides all this, the fact that you have a, a debt that you'll never p- finish paying. And that, that's how you keep the commandments is by loving each other. Besides this, listen to what he says. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. And when I say the imminent return of Jesus Christ, I mean the biblical teaching that Jesus could return at any moment was taught by the early church over and over. So much so that there were some problems they had to deal with in the early church. Because Paul and the apostles were teaching that Jesus is gone, but he's going to come back and he's going to take us to go be with him. And then there's going to be a tribulation period. And then there's going to be the millennial kingdom. And that was clearly taught to the early church. But some people's attitude was, well, if Jesus is coming back and it's real soon, I don't got to work. And they had to write to the church and say, if someone's not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. You had others who had become lazy and busybodies and others who were living off the generosity of the church. Remember, they were all sharing with each other and and they were lending without interest. And if anybody had need, they were doing it. And all of a sudden, some people thought, this is pretty cool. I I don't even have to work and I can just hang out with these people and I can eat and all my bills will be taken care of and... That's why Paul had to write and say, look, if a lady's really a widow, then you can meet her needs. But first, make sure the family, that she has family that can take care of them and all that kind of stuff. And had to make some stipulations. But Paul thought that the return of Jesus was going to happen in his lifetime. He kept saying, and we who are alive at the return will be caught up. He says, we... He was looking for the return of Jesus at any moment and that actually is a biblical doctrine and that should fuel us to be ready at any moment for the return of Jesus Christ. Not only should we be living with a love for God and a love for each other because that's been commanded, but at the same time, because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. By the way, how long ago did he write this? About 1,500, 1,700 years ago. Would you not agree then that Our salvation is even closer than when Paul wrote this. But we've got to deal with a couple of things here. Well, before I go there, go to Titus chapter 2. Go to Titus chapter 2. The early church and the church was never taught to watch out for the Antichrist. The church was taught to watch for Jesus. I don't have time to show you all the places, but I'm just going to show you one. Look at chapter 2 of Titus, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave, us up for him, gave himself up for us to redeem us from all honestness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus himself said at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. We are to be living our lives in these last days ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to make a statement to you that I want you to hear closely what I'm saying. The return of Jesus Christ is going to happen in your lifetime. I'm going to say it again. The return of Jesus Christ is going to happen in your lifetime. Now, I did not say the rapture is going to happen in your lifetime. I'm saying the return of Jesus Christ is going to happen in your lifetime. For some of us, it may be tomorrow. We don't know how many of us are promised tomorrow. For some of us, it might be five, ten years from now if Jesus tarries. But did Jesus not say that he goes to prepare a place for us? And if he goes to prepare a place for us, he'll come back and get us and take us to be with him where he is. Even if we're not alive at the time of the rapture, when it's your time to leave this planet, Jesus is going to come get you and he's coming in your lifetime. Are you ready? Which time to wake up? It's time to get serious about this relationship that we've been given. That's why the Bible says that we're to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. But verse 13 of Philippians 2 says this, because it's God who's at work within us to act and to give us the desire according to his purposes. We've got to get serious. Paul tells us, the, the believers here, he says, look, your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Well, hang hey on a second. If I already have salvation, how is my salvation nearer than when I first believed? Remember, your salvation has three parts. Whenever the Bible talks about salvation, we always read salvation as the time when we got saved. That's just the first part of salvation. Salvation has three parts. Your first part is the day you got saved, and that is the day of your justification. You were saved, you were declared righteous, you were sealed by the Spirit of God, Actually, the Bible says you're already seated in the heavenly realms. That makes my head hurt. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says we're already seated with Christ. If we're in Christ and he's in us and he's seated in the heavenly realms, we're already there with him in one sense. Yet the Bible also says that there's a process of our salvation being worked out. Didn't we just say that in Philippians 2? Work out your salvation. I thought I already have it. Why do I have to work it out? Because you have it, but it's also being worked out. We're in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The Bible calls it sanctification. Go with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verse 14. Look at Hebrews 10 verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time. Who? Those who are being what? sanctified. So wait a minute. Am I perfected for all time or am I being sanctified? The answer is yes. You've already been perfected in the fact that the righteousness of Christ is all yours. But now God is in the process of having it manifested more and more on a daily basis as we still live in these bodies and we wrestle against the flesh. What is already yours and the divine nature that you've already received, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and following, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him so that we're able to partake of the divine nature and the promises that come with it. You've already been perfected yet now you're in the process of being sanctified even though you're already saved you're being saved and the Bible also says in many places that when Jesus comes He's going to bring salvation with him so I'm gonna ask you again are you saved are you being saved or will you one day be saved the answer is yes he who began the good work in you is gonna finish it it's already done but it's being done and one day praise the Lord it'll be all done but we need to keep that in mind we got to understand that God already sees me as the finished product. I love that. Because right now, I don't look like the finished product. And I don't know if you caught that in this passage in Romans. Did you notice how God's not expecting perfection? Go back to Romans chapter 13. He says, you know the time. Verse 11. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, he said, you've been saved And one day your salvation will be complete. And in this process, God is not expecting the perfection that you have to be seen right away. But he's expecting growth. Evidence that you're saved. And so we need to get serious about the days that we're living in. Folks, I'm going to be honest with you. Because of my knowledge of the word of God, and I have a lot that I don't understand yet. But the things that he's revealed to me, when I watch the chaos in the globe erupt, I get excited. You know why? Because we're getting closer to the day. I'm one of these weird people. I'm going to be straight with you. I love getting older. I don't just like it. Love it. My wife says, you're acting like an old man. I'm like, yes, I am. (laughs) I'll tell you right now, I'm 57. Can't wait to hit 58. That's not till March, but buddy, I can't wait. And I can't wait till 59 if Jesus tarries. But here's why. When people say, why do you like getting older? I answer them this way. And my family will tell you it's the truth because I'm a day closer to heaven. Folks, I'm a stranger in this planet. I'm just a sojourner. I'm an alien and you know what? This place is looking more and more alien as the days go on. And I know heaven is real and I know I'm saved. And he's confirmed it in my spirit. And until he takes me home, he's got a purpose for me here. But I'm loving this place less and less. And I'm closer to heaven every single day. Whether it's the rapture or whether it's the time that Jim Johnson times on this earth comes to an end. I, for years, had no problem asking ladies how old they are. And my wife goes, you don't ask a lady that. Well, in my mind, I like getting older. Why wouldn't they want to say how old they were? They're a day closer to heaven, too. But they don't want to acknowledge that. Get to that place where you're like, Lord, every day is a day closer to the day that I'll see you. We don't know. And we're not to worry about it. But by the way, you know, the, Bible's already, the Bible says he's already set the day. Who of you, by worrying, can add one hour to your life? Yeah, but Jim, the doctor just said, Yeah. And God's going to use that health issue you're going through to shape you and to conform you more into the image of Jesus Christ. And he may heal you, he may not, but it hasn't changed your day that has been set. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Illness or not. Illness or not. COVID or not. But a lot of us as Christians have lost sight of the Truth of the word of God and the promises that are there to give us peace and joy and we start looking at things like the world does and we end up worrying anxious and fearful and living for this life and we're holding on to our candy for fear that it might run out when God says if you do what I ask you to do it's yours to do whatever you want but if you do what I ask you to do with it I promise you it'll never run out go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. It's a very familiar passage, but there's something in here that many of us have never really let sink in at the very end of this section. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, To the praise of his glory. I thought we were already saved, but I don't have possession of it. No, you do, but you don't. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's already done. Don't worry. It's going to happen. You'll enjoy this life a whole lot more if you stop fighting it. Yet at the same time, don't sit back and say, well, I'm already there. No, God's still got you here to accomplish some more in you and through you for his purposes and for his glory. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 9. Look again at what it says here. All through the scripture, the Bible's been telling us that our salvation is done and not done. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ though you haven't seen him you love him and though you don't see him now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls so is salvation already mine kept in heaven for me undefiled unfading, or is it going to be received one day? The answer is yes. Rest in the fact that if you're his and Jesus is in you, He sealed you as a guarantee and his spirit's within you, but don't think you're done. We're to be living for the life to come. We're to be storing up treasure in heaven. We're not to be amassing things and setting up our kingdom here. We're to be strangers and aliens and saying, Lord, I want to walk with you and I want to live the life you have for me. By the way, as you're going to see next week, beware of people. Well-intentioned as they may be, even preachers who will tell you specifically how you're supposed to live out now the life that God has for you. Because they'll become, some will say, you can't have a nice house, you can't have a good car, you can't have all these things. And they're going to try to tell you what it means to live out what God has for each of you. And Romans 14 is going to blow that all up next week. It's a yes. They'll say if you're spiritual, you'll do this and you'll do that. No, no, no. I'm going to teach you next week that the Bible says if you learn how to walk with Jesus, what he has for each of you, it'll look different and be okay with that. Some of you, he might have you sell everything and go live in the bush. Others, he might say, I want you to go work at the country club. Because I have a purpose to use you there as well, because they need the gospel just as much as the people in the bush. And some of us say, I'll take the country club assignment. Trust me, wherever he sends you, you'll love it because he's prepared you for it and he's gifted you for it. And it'll be the best thing. But we want to be God. Remember that? And we want to tell everybody else how they're to live their lives and what it's supposed to look like. No, we'll blow that up next week. I'll preach next week's message next week. But let me just say this. The Bible actually says very clearly that you have been saved. But one day your salvation will be complete, and when it's complete is the day that you also get your reward for everything you've done in the body after salvation, whether it's rewardable or worthless. You know, the Bible says that there'll be tears in heaven. No, 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 there won't be tears in heaven. No, read your Bibles. He's at one point going to wipe every tear from their eyes. I believe the Bible teaches there'll be regret at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following, Paul says that there's no other foundation that can be laid except that which is laid, and that's Jesus Christ. But after that foundation has been laid, faith in him, each of us must, must be careful how we build, whether with wood, hay straw, gold, silver, precious stones, because the day, the judgment seat of Christ that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and following, the judgment seat of Christ will judge whether or not, what we have done survives, and only what's done, been done by faith through Him will we be rewarded for. Him. And if it survives the fire, you'll be rewarded. But if what you have done is burnt up, the scripture says you will suffer loss, though you'll still be saved. That's already been taken care of, that's already been given to you. You're justified, you're declared righteous. But you'll be as someone only escaping, barely getting over the flames. Well, I'll tell you the honest truth. When I'm walking around heaven, I don't want anybody walking up next to me and going, he barely made it. I don't want you to smell smoke on me. I want to be rewarded for what he's done. And I want to live for what is to come. And the Bible says, because of this, we should wake up. We should wake up. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. I said 2 Corinthians 10. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Let's go to Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, and we'll wrap up with that tonight. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There it is again. Are you saved? Are you going to be saved? Yes. Folks. Thank him for what he's already done. Thank him for the fact that he's going to finish it. But spend your days now saying, Lord, what does your plan for saving me look like? Remember, to one he gave five talents, another two, and another one, each according to their ability. Don't compare your life and what following Jesus looks like for you to anybody else. You walk with Jesus. We don't know whether or not we're a five or two or a one, and we shouldn't. But God showed us that there are fives and there are twos and there are ones just so that we won't compare and expect everybody to do the same. On top of that, Jesus says to Peter, let me tell you how you're going to die. You're going to die by crucifixion. And Peter, being human as you and I, says, well, what about John? How's he going to die? And Jesus says, what if I want him to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? Why are you even worried about how John's going to die? You follow me. And folks, I'm going to tell you, that'll help you with chapter 14. But if you can get to the point where you're living the life God has for you, you can drown out all the other preachers in the, in the church. It'll tell you what your life's supposed to be looking like. And I'd go into sin if I would say, here's how you love your brother. And here's all. Oh, no, no, no. The Lord lives within you. He's going to take the truth of what we're looking at. And he's going to show you how he wants you to live it out. And he's going to guide you. But the good news is, he's not expecting Perfection. He's just expecting growth. Did you hear me? He's writing to Christians and he's saying, hey, why don't you stop the orgies and the sensuality and put on the Lord Jesus Christ? If you were to go to Colossians chapter three, since we've been raised with Christ, since we're already seated in the heavenly realms, let us set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. And then he goes off and he, and he says, put off these things and put on these so let the Lord show you on a daily basis what it means to follow him and to love him and just do the things he's working with you now. We've all been taught to sing the song, I Surrender All. And God says, I didn't ask you to surrender all. I asked you to surrender what I'm talking to you about right now. Actually, if, uh, if you tried to surrender all that I have for you to surrender in your lifetime, it would kill you. You, you don't want to know right now what I want you to surrender <laughs> I want you to just rest in. Well, let me just close with this. You, you mamas out there that had little girls, did you tell them when they were four about childbirth? Why didn't you? I mean, come on. They, I mean, they're going to have to be a mom one day, and they're going to. Why did you not tell a four-year-old about childbirth? They weren't ready. They wouldn't understand, and it would, it would freak them out. It might keep them away from boys the rest of their life, but listen to the thing. Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 12 said, I have more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth come, he's going to guide you into all the truth. Folks, Jesus wants you to have a willingness to surrender whatever he's asking you. There's nothing wrong with say I surrender all. Lord, tell me what all looks like today. But don't try to be super Christian tonight. Walk with him today and let him have what he's talking to you about now. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.